Welcome to the 31st episode of Quarantined Market Podcast, where some academics get together in the self-isolating comfort of our pajamas, and we discuss particular keywords. The keyword for today is black struggle. And as guest today, we have Tracy Wetchy. Alan, would you please introduce Tracy for us? Yes, indeed I will. Uh, Tracy Wetchy is a PhD student at Royal Holloway, University of London, and her research addresses questions of black struggle, feminism, and in particular, she's been looking at YouTube videos and other type of content creation. Hello, Tracy. Hi. Hi. Thank you for having me on. So the topic that we wish to address with you today, Tracy, is black struggle. So first of all, could you please tell us what's a good way to approach the concept of black struggle? I think that's a um, really um, interesting question to ask. And, you know, it's particularly important um, given, you know, the rise that we're seeing with the Black Lives Matter movement um, during this pandemic, which has, you know, really energ- re-energized um, Black struggle globally. And um, I think brought Black struggle to the forefront of, you know, current affairs once again. But, you know, in terms of how we approach it, I think we really need to, um, first of all, dissect what black struggle, you know, actually means. You know, I suppose in its most, you know, basic, simplified form, you know, the majority of people see um, or identify um, black struggle, you know, as black people's fight for freedom and, you know, liberation from the oppressive systemic forces of um, racism, which, you know, really controls every aspect of the black experience. Um, But I think when we, you know, deeply unpack and um, interrogate um, the political and historical origins of black struggle, we, you know, really come to see that the actual term black struggle is, you know, really a matter of um, deep contestation. Um, And I think this is because of the fact that, you know, black struggle throughout history has encompassed many different uh, and sometimes contradictory uh, anti-racist political um, ideologies, um, which have informed and have been informed by uh, global uh, anti-racist movements and, you know, important um, historical moments in the um, black experience. So I think many uh, researchers such as myself, you know, we argue that, you know, the potential for true black um, liberation through um, black struggle is actually um, not just doing or engaging with black struggle, but it's actually determined by which um, political ideology somebody someone draws from when engaging with black struggle um being that you know the term can be used for various um political ends what kind of history is there of the term black itself because i'm aware that we're talking about very diverse people spread all over the globe and indeed lots of different types of uh, skin colors or, or gradations of pigmentation all get unfolded into this umbrella term of black so clearly there must be some sort of social construction going on. Is there a history to that social construction that can be uh, easily pointed to? 
Yeah, I think um, with the definition of black, um, I don't think it, you know, identifies with a specific um, race. You know, the term black was very much um, created um, during, you know, the civil rights movements that we saw um, in America uh, during the 1950s and 60s. And I think, you know, when we talk about black, we should try and see black as more of a political term, you know, to encompass anybody who is um, not white, you know, who, um, who has experienced racial forms of violence. So, you know, black is really a political category and really encompasses, um, you know, resistance against the uh, systemic forces of racism. And I think this is what, um, you know, Kahindi uh, Andrews really, um, you know, dissects in his book, um, Back to Black, Retelling Black Radicalism um, for the 21st Century. It's a really great informative book, um, you know, which I would highly um, recommend to anyone looking for a more current, um, timely analysis of the historical, um, you know, legacy of Black and Black struggle. And, you know, in his book, when he um, traces the history of, you know, um, Black struggle, he identifies various um, different political ideologies um, that have been associated with and, you know, fallen under the umbrella of um, Black struggle throughout history. And um, the two main ones that he um, identifies really is um, black nationalism and black um, radicalism. And I think if we, you know, really come to grips with, you know, understanding and interrogating um, these different forms of black struggle, I think it would really be, um, you know, critical for the moment that we're um, now seeing. So um, one form of um, black struggle, you know, that has been prevalent, you know, in the history of black people, you know, fighting against um, racism is um, black, black nationalism, which actually has many different forms. And I don't, um, conscious of time, so I won't um, go through any, many of um, all of them, but um, I, I want to specifically talk about the ones that I think relate, you know, to the current moment that we're seeing now. And, you know, um, you know, after, um, you know, the anger of the protests, you know, what kind of suggestions are now being put forth in terms of, you know, change and reform. So one of the um, forms of um, black nationalism is nation with in a nation concept. And, you know, here black struggle is really premised on building um, black communities of wealth. Um, within uh, nation states in order to, you know, improve the socio-economic standing of black communities and uh, their overall quality of life. Because, um, so this ideology really sees um, the system, um, particularly it was addressing the system in America as being, you know, inherently for, um, inherently um, racist, racist and um, deeply flawed. So, is the idea that, um, you know, black people should stop relying, you know, on the American system for um, progress 
you know, in the lives of the black community, you know, and black people themselves should really try to, you know, ensure their own economic development. So it's really saying that, you know, the black community need to, you know, build their own wealth, you know, by uh, wherever possible, uh, buying from black owned businesses, making sure you're putting your money into black owned banks and, you know, really strengthening um, the black bank and ensuring that, you know, it's circulating with um, the black community. And we really saw this, you know, in the history of black struggle, I think, um, during the 1920s, we saw a glimpse of this with the, um, it was called actually Black Wall Street, you know, which was one of the wealthiest black communities in um, Oklahoma, America at the time, um, which was uh, savagely burned down to the ground um, due to, you know, racial um, terrorism and violence. But yeah, I think um, that's really a great, you know, example of, you know, the nation uh, within a nation uh, concept. And uh, the other form of black um, nationalism, um, I think, is one of the more popular forms of black nationalism, which is really prevalent today and really has become, you know, the predominant um, modus operandi, if you will, of the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, during this pandemic. It's what uh, Kehinde Andrews calls, you know, a weak black nationalism, which is um, very much um, compatible with more liberal, liberalist ideals. And, you know, really uh, seeks to push forward for more liberal notion of black struggle, you know, where the goal is to reform the system of the West from within. So black nationalists, uh, these types of liberal black nationalists, the ideology, it believes that, um, you know, the existence and persistence of um, racial inequality is really down to the systemic uh, racism of institutions of the system and the fact that, you know, black people have uh, less access to um, parts of the system, you know, such as the job market, uh, which in turn uh, leads to their oppression. Uh, so um, higher poverty, higher unemployment, increased likelihood of, uh, you know, being the subject of racial abuse and violence. So um, Black struggle here, I think, is really concerned with, you know, remedying these issues by uh, reforming um, the system, you know, through legislation that outlaws, you know, any form of racial discrimination. I think we see this today, you know, with a lot of people demanding that, you know, the, you know, black population, you know, really try to, well, encouraging the black population to, you know, get out and vote and, you know, do what they can to ensure black representation um, within, you know, positions of, you know, power that have the authority to, you know, implement laws that would help to fight against the barriers that um, black people experience in society um, in terms of accessing the system. Yeah, so um, those are uh, the different forms of um, black nationalism. I just want to say quickly, I think, though, that it's really important that although these forms of black nationalism are, you know, really deeply fundamental in the interim period to, you know, making sure that the government and its agencies 
are also held accountable for the you know perpetuation of racist ideals it's important to note that you know a lot of uh criticism has been levied at black nationalism when it's used as an end in itself um, because of the fact that you know the system of the west is deeply um, built um, upon and maintained um, by oppressing black people you know and so there's this idea there's this uh, fundamental idea that you know we cannot end systemic racism by reforming the system or you know ignoring the system completely you know and trying to build you know our own you know communities of wealth you know within the system this is what um another form of um black struggle is which is black radicalism which sees that you know in order to achieve you know true black liberation we have to you know endeavor to you know engage in nothing short of um a revolution you know only by overturning um the system completely can we achieve you know true liberation yes um reforms um can make leeway you know for small um progressive change to happen but the system cannot be reformed wholly because of the you know regressive deep rooted structures of racism that are existing um within um the nascent state and i think you know one of the clearest examples of this is you know um barack obama he's his inauguration people uh you know were of the belief that you know because he was you know a black man the you know conditions of black people in um america would you know radically you know and drastically change because you know this was somebody who was you know at the height of you know the uh, america now and he had the power you know to really implement uh, change however you know when you look at statistics during his present presidency you see that african americans um you know their socioeconomic positions actually declined under his presidency you know with a higher number of black people living in poverty and i think you know it was such a crazy number like 4 million people un- unemployed under his presidency you know so that's why black struggle you know us as black radicals we argue for you know a more um radical alternative to black struggle one that is capable of overthrowing the global system of um imperialism you know and we see this as the only means to achieving um true uh liberation You've mentioned America a few times and it seems to me that America uh, has for for quite a while been at the, the vanguard of black struggle but I'm wondering to what extent that that determines the definition of black struggle in other parts of the world and if that in turn creates any uh, tension so for example I'm I'm aware that you're speaking to us from Birmingham which of course is the city that um or 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 part of where Oswald Mosley the the British fascist leader uh began his ascent where Enoch Powell gave his racist rivers of blood speech in 1968 um and and of course uh, Stuart Hall tells us that there was a mugging in I think it was Digbet uh where where some black teenagers mugged a white man and the media reporting of this which should have been a minor incident provoked uh, a um 
moral panic, he, he said, which Margaret Thatcher was able to kind of uh, opportunistically um, use as her ascent to power. So in that sense, the, the events in Birmingham have a very rich kind of racist history to them. And I wonder to what extent that that story or the, the, the black experience within cities like Birmingham or are allowed to come manifest in a time when, for example, Black Lives Matter, as it seems to me, from, from my subject position anyway, to be a sort of American importation. This is a very long-winded question. My question is, is there a tension between the local um, and the American definition of black struggle? I would agree with this and say yes. And I think, you know, if you um, look at the current um, political climate now and, you know, the global protests that are taking um, place around the world, it all really centers around an American experience of black struggle, you know, historically and, you know, presently now with what's happening, you know. And what we're seeing now was really ignited by George Floyd and the outrage, you know, and anger that black people in America felt, which was able to, you know, spread like wildfire to so many parts of the world and, you know, spark these global um, demonstrations in solidarity with, you know, black America and, you know, the long-standing issues that it has with police brutality. And it's really interesting because it, sh it, it does show you you know, the connection of blackness and, you know, the fact that it cannot be contained by national borders, you know, the black experience is felt worldwide. And I think what's important to note is that, you know, a lot of, um, you know, the black protests that were happening here in the UK, not only were they standing in solidarity with America, they were also, you know, confronting, um, you know, their own experience of, you know, police brutality, you know, here in the UK which, you know, has been rampant for many years. You know, we had the McPherson report in, you know, I think the 1990s, which showed the, you know, metropolitan um, police force to be institutionally racist. So I think that's important to note that, you know, there is a shared connectivity of blackness, you know, as well as a contestation. But I think, you know, the events over the last couple of months have really um, raised also important questions such as why is the killing of a black man in America, you know, able to draw such massive crowds to come out in protest whilst, you know, it's really been felt by a lot of members of the black British community that there is a lack of, you know, community support for black movements for justice, um, for black people killed in the um, by the police, you know, in Britain. Um, and I think this is something that Akala very much focuses on in his book, um, Natives, which is all about, you know, the history of um, empire. And I think, you know, he discusses at length in his book and it really addresses the fact that, you know, um, the scholarship, you know, around issues to do with black struggle have really been led by, you know, the work of African-American academics and I think rightly so because their scholarship has really you know been able to connect with you know the historical legacy of slavery in America and how it today you know informs the black experience. America was the epicenter of empire and you know it's the center today of world politics so 
the experience of blackness there, you know, such as with uh, slavery, you know, the civil war, uh, the Jim Crow legislations. There's really been, you know, a deep history there of overt forms of racial oppression. So black people have been more able to, you know, confront their history and really dissect it, you know, for what it is. Whereas in Britain, I think that there has been, you know, a lack of, you know, formal apartheid and, you know, more, you know, legal and, you know, formalized forms of racism, particularly during the 20th century. You know, so Britain has been, you know, premised on more overt forms of racism. And there has been scholarship on this, you know, from Paul Gilroy's, you know, you mentioned Stuart Hall, Claudia Jones, um, Heidi Mirza, Kehinde Andrews. However, I think when we look um, at the mainstream imagination in Britain, I think um, the challenge uh, with, you know, confronting our own racist past, you know, is really Britain overall, its failure to, you know, reconcile um, with and confront, you know, educate about the history of empire and its, you know, fundamental role in the historical oppression of black people and how that plays out today in, you know, British um, society. The historical uh, legacy of empire really informs every aspect of the black experience. Um, however, you know, that history is, you know, largely um, silenced and it almost seems as if it's been completely wiped from the mainstream um, um, imagination, which, you know, means that we have been, we have been um, as a black population, heavily, heavily reliant on, you know, American models of, you know, understanding racism and black struggle, you know, and I think in many ways, the British uh, government um, has really encouraged this. And I think there's been a concerted effort on the part of um, British institutions to, you know, sort of erase, you know, the history of empire. Marx in the German, in German ideology, I remember he says something about the fact that the ruling class also present, uh, possessed, you know, the ruling ideas, you know, and are able to enforce this on the minds of the population. So I think, you know, race has been uh, carefully managed by, you know, our institutions such as, you know, the educational system, um, you know, also within the British media to really, you know, subvert um, our attention away from our own racial um, past, you know, and its continuing deep-rooted nature in, you know, the fabric of our society now, you know. So we're really uh, made to focus on an American racist history, um, you know, while Britain is almost seen as this, you know, multicultural you, you know, utopia. If you look, you know, at the poverty of the um, educational system today, you'll see that, you know, it really perpetuates for us, you know, as black people to have a really narrow understanding of our own black history. You know, I, I can't, you know, recount the number of times within my own history class, you know, I was shown documentaries about, you know, Martin Luther King, you know, as, you know, this great civil rights leader, leader. And, you know, there was sort of this romanticism of the civil rights movement, kind of showing that, you know, racism 
was something that you know affected America. It's not something that affected uh, Britain. So you know, we weren't able to confront this history, and I think that was a really big. That's that's been a really big problem, and why we're you know so American-centered when we you know look at you know the experience of race. This issue is also deeply problematic because of the fact, you know, that it leaves us really unable to challenge the global vicious system of racial oppression and tackle, you know, its impact, you know, at the ground level. Africa has experienced uh, the most, you know, violent forms of racial oppression, you know, and it still experiences it today, you know, due to uh, the neo-colonial relationships that still exist you know with Africa and Europe you know and its former colonies and so I think we have to also you know while we're you know confronting issues to do with you know the difference between African and American you know understandings of uh, race we also have to you know look at Africa as a continent you know and you know debunk ideas that Africa is poor you know because of, you know, the popular myths that, you know, Africans are savage or, you know, lazy. You know, no, millions of children, you know, are dying every year in Africa from poverty. You know, slavery, you know, is still alive in Libya. And, you know, this is because of the direct result of, you know, British Empire and the West's continued rule over Africa, you know, which has severely, you know, fractured their, uh, pro, uh, the progress of Africa, also through the stealing, you know, continued stealing of their natural resources. So I think your question also really raises important issues around the whole Black Lives Matter movement. You know, while it's prioritizing the lives of, you know, Black people, you know, within the West, in America, does it also mean, you know, um, that Black lives don't matter as much in you know Africa, so I think um, back to what I was saying about you know liberal approaches to black struggle. When we look at you know liberal approaches, um, you know that contain themselves with you know improving nation states, you know reforming the laws in nation um, nation states only. We really have to see that you know a liberal approach of black struggle really, you know, largely ignores this, this global systemic problem of racism, you know. So uh, I think one of the important things that I would say that people should grasp from this Black Lives Matter movement is that, you know, we really need to start concerning ourselves more with an international approach to tackling racism by also engaging with the Black experience outside of the West and also prioritising the British experience. Tracy, uh, speaking of Black Lives Matter and the vast demonstrations that have now swept across the United States and also other parts of the world after the deeply saddening symbol of George Floyd getting killed, uh, when one looks at all of this from uh, outside, of course, but from an affective register, it's kind of uh, you can immediately see that there's this vast intensities of exhaustion anger and despair. But perhaps also one could see some hope emanating from these these very uh, kind of affective uh, enunciations that happen collectively. 
How do you see the interplay of these different intensities in motion now with these demonstrations? Yeah, so I think um, resurgence that we're seeing, you know, today with the Black Lives Matter movement um, after, you know, the killing of George Floyd coupled, you know, with the visceral impact of, you know, uh, coronavirus on uh, black and ethnic minority communities. I think it's really been a defining moment, you know, and has really magnified and um, laid bare, you know, the deep-seated um, structural, you know, inequalities um, and racism that is still, you know, embedded into the core fabric of, uh, you know, society, which I've mentioned before. So I think um, in terms of how it's been organized i would say that you know it's really been organized in a haphazard fashion and i think you know this is how it should be at the start you know within the black community we were seeing really organic outbursts of you know as you mentioned anger shock you know about the moment that we were you know witnessing which was you know which is really unprecedented you know, in most of our lifetimes. And I think, you know, there was no way, you know, at the start to, you know, coordinate and organise a global response um, rooted in black struggle at the start because, you know, everything was really uncertain and still up in the air and, you know, new revelations were unfolding day by day, you know. So at the start of the pandemic, it was suggested that black people were, you know, immune to the disease um, of coronavirus. And then this took a very drastic turn, you know, given the disproportionate number of deaths that we were seeing. So I think that, you know, black struggle at the start um, was, you know, critically, you know, sort of a healing space for many um, people as well as, you know, a conscious raising, you know, activity, which was, you know, able to spread knowledge about the pandemic about, um, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement particularly, about, um, you know, police brutality um, and, you know, how this, you know, affects um, black people in particular, you know, but it also allowed, you know, black people to really come together, you know, in a way that really hasn't been seen in, you know, a very long time, you know, come together and really this was, had a lot to do, you know, with the power of technology it really played a fundamental role I think during the period of lockdown I think I attended more talks and seminars you know about um, black struggle and and, you know black lives matter you know than I ever have in my you know lifetime you know the power of video conferencing really aided and you know accelerated you know the movement and you know what it now uh, stands for today you know I learned so much about Black struggle through, um, you know, Black Twitter, which was particularly vocal, and you know, I, it, there was a lot of, um, I think, condemnation of the government's response to COVID nineteen, and I think this really um, coupled with what we were seeing um, in America, and I think the the the, the presence of um, COVID nineteen was really. Um, you know, something that I think the Black Lives Matter movement was able to take advantage of, you know, 
within the media there wasn't really much you know going on to report about so I think that they were really able to you know hone in on the protests that were going on in America and I think that's what really played a you know key part in it spreading all over the world so I think yeah social media and the media overall really had um, a big part to play but you know back to your question about you know what what kind of moment are we seeing now? And, you know, like, how are we moving forward? I think, you know, the initial phase of anger that we saw, you know, people acting out against the system, you know, through the, you know, tearing down of the statue of Ed- Edward Colston, you know, the, you know, protesting, the, lo- the looting that was going on, I, you know, it was really, you know, moving and very powerful and, you know, it allowed you know, people outside of the black community to also engage, you know, with, you know, the black experience, you know, and our experience of oppression, which I think was really um, powerful and, you know, really um, important. And I think when we talk about this moment, it really exposed the deep-rooted racism of the West, you know, and particularly the issues surrounding um, state-sanctioned violence. But I had really hoped that, you know, as a black people, you know, after the anger had, you know, died down, you know, after the protests, you know, had stopped, I'd really hoped that we would have been able to take advantage of this moment to build, you know, a more coordinated, radical um, response, um, you know, to the global systemic force of racism. And I don't want to um, downplay, you know, the importance of this moment you know, that we're seeing because, you know, it it was able to usher in, you know, a critical period where, you know, silence was now seen as betrayal. So, you know, it definitely encouraged a lot of conversations around um, racism from people that would not necessarily, you know, engage with racism, you know, and it really allowed, you know, a lot of, you know, thought-provoking, you know, discussions to be had around racism and you know it was interesting to see everybody's you know critical dissection of the moment and you know calls for change but you know as Holly Lewis says um, you know you actually have to change the system to change it and I think you know the message for change was really being lost behind everybody's contribution to you know this wall of noise so you know there was a lot of information being passed around on Twitter, a lot of, you know, news clips, YouTube videos, TikToks, Instagram photos, Facebook posts, Zoom conferences, you know, YouTube seminars, and a lot of people, you know, were getting involved. There were so many statements I couldn't count from, you know, different, you know, institutions and public bodies engaging, you know, showing their solidarity with, you know, Black Lives Matter you know, and how they, uh, you know, are going to implement, you know, action plans to, you know, tackle racism within their own infrastructures. So I think, you know, this was all really important. Um, But as well as being important, you know, like you said, it was also very exhausting and very overwhelming. And I think that the acceleration of information that we were seeing in a way, um, detracted from, you know, building, you know, a clear, coordinated pathway to black liberate, um, liberation. And I think 
Um, there is also, you know, a level of fear that the conversations are being, you know, directed to, you know, a more liberal and cultural notion of black struggle, you know, which I, you know, argued about before is deeply problematic when it's used in an, as an end in itself, um, you know, because of the fact that, you know, it's unable to substantively challenge um, the imperial social order of the uh, West. You know, so definitely I think the moment was important and it was, you know, very much needed, but I don't think it's the, you know, defining moment that, you know, everybody is imagining it to be. And I think, you know, like the Black Lives Matter movement, if you look, I actually, uh, during, uh, you know, the, the when the waves of protests were happening, I was so engrossed with what was happening that, you know, I turned to, you know, the Black Lives Matter actual website to see like, okay, you know, everything is really kicking off. How can I, you know, as a black person, how can I contribute to change? You know, I guess I was looking for, you know, what was the, you know, bigger picture overall, you know? And I think when I went to the um, website, the Black Lives Matter website, there were words such as, you know, we need a revolution, we seek freedom, we seek liberty. But I think the issue with what I was seeing is that there was no roadmap to how we achieve, you know, this type of freedom, this type of um, liberation through black struggle. And I think that it really, you know, misunderstood or, you know, in a way kind of undermined the level of coordination that, uh, you know, a revolution at a global level uh, would actually entail, you know. So to me, uh, you know, the level of sophisticated coordination and organisation, you know, needed to incite a true, you know, revolution, you know, disrupt, dismantle, overthrow, you know, the you know global capitalist system that perpetuates, you know, racial violence, um, it was very much la lacking in the popular imagination. I don't think there was, you know, enough anti-capitalist dialogue or engagement, you know, with the structural uh, neo-colonial forces of racism, you know, taking place at this very moment. At that very moment, you know, outside of the West too. When we look at the political ideology of the black radical movement and approach to black struggle, you know, you know, uh, theorists such as Frantz Fanon, he very much sees, you know, Africa as the epicenter um, and, you know, being fundamental in the struggle to, you know, overthrow the global uh, system of racial oppression, you know. And even Fanon warned then that the main problem that was facing Africa at the time that he wrote um, the book Wretched of the Earth, the main problem that was facing Africa was the lack of an, you know, coherent ideology, you know, to really push forth, you know, the uh, revolution that was needed. So I think um, within what we're seeing now, it's important to, you know, really condemn and confront our historical experience of slavery and how it's, you know, now become so deep-rooted into, you know, 
institutions that it now you know plays out on a daily basis in the lives of black people i think it's so important to confront these issues but true revolution you know must also provide an alternative you know beyond condemnation and i don't think we are you know really seeing this i don't think we're seeing you know a coordinated organizing that's you know radical enough to really implement the changes uh, that we need for liberation so uh, in a recent uh, episode uh, stefano harney was talking about exactly similar things he was uh, quoting um, occupy wall street and also the black lives matter movement now and uh, he's, he kind of was alluding to that part of the reason why there is a sense of disappointment arising from these things is precisely this sort of lack of a program or what you call a coordinated effort. So I know this is a very speculative question, but what do you think is still missing from the whole picture so that a better coordinated or a program could arise in a meaningful way? I think that uh, when we look at uh, what is you know unfolding, before us, I think um, it's easy to just condemn what's going on without really providing solutions. So I think if I was to, um, you know, provide, you know, a critique, I think one of the important things that we need to really do is within the black struggles that are taking place now, we really have to, you know, confront the issues um, and the relationship of black struggles to Um, identity politics and I think that oftentimes you know black struggle engages with um, identity politics but you know completely bypasses you know a class analysis um, or when class is discussed it either uh, culturizes the social divisions of labor you know class becomes seen as just another you know vector of oppression and power So, you know, questions within the black struggle come centered around, you know, how can black people achieve social equality, you know, by improving their class status within the system, you know, through increasing their income or and their wealth. And this is very much seen as the pathway to black liberation, but this is far from the case. You know, identity politics without, you know, being coupled with a deep class analysis of um, black struggle and racism is not going to bring about the true changes that we require because you know we need to not just look at the symptoms of racism you know and the symptoms of racism are the you know statistics that we see uh, every day in the media about the fact that black people face, you know, health inequality, you know, black women are five times more likely to die in hospital during childbirth. Uh, you know, black people also experience, uh, you know, the institutional effects of racism, you know, from the police force. So black people are more likely to be stopped and searched by the police. Black, um, And this is statistics within Britain, black people are eight times more likely to have a taser discharged on them. Black people are more likely to be um, charged for an offence. And when they're charged, they're more likely to experience harsher 
um, sentences. Also, black people are more likely to live in disadvantaged housing and have, you know, an increased likelihood of poverty. And so when you're looking at all of these, you know, statistics, automatically, you know, the black struggle that, you know, we're seeing in our lifetime automatically adopts the liberalist um, approach to tackling it. And a liberalist approach only tackles the symptoms of racism, so the effects, you know, so it, you know, argues that we need to, you know, improve the criminal justice system, you know, we need to tackle, you know, the endemic of institutional racism, you know, all of these issues, but we don't ever, you know, inquire to tackle the deep-rooted problems of, you know, racial inequality, you know, so when we ask where does racial inequality comes from, I think, you know, the popular answer, you know, within um, black communities is that, you know, racial inequality comes from, you know, a concentration of power within whiteness, you know, but racism is not simply a matter of, you know, power and I think power relations. So yes, institutional racism, for example, in the police force, yes, it's the articulation of violence you know it's the effect of the power of white um, whiteness you know but this form of racism should not be understood solely in terms of power um, I think without inquiring into the genealogy of power you know how is power derived because I think only then are we able to you know get to the root cause of systemic racism you know in order to begin to strategize to end it. So when, you know, the an- the common answer is where is racism from? Well, racism, you know, is as a result of, you know, white supremacy, white power. You know, power is not just derived from nothing. Power is uh, the social and political manifestation um, of the ownership of the means of production. And this is what, you know, Black Marxist theory would suggest. So the effects of power, i.e. racism, should also, you know, be examined in relation to the relations of production. So the power afforded to the white ruling class in in the West, you know, which allows them to carry out, you know, racial forms of violence through their institutional agents, you know, that power is generated from their ownership, their direct ownership of the means of production and some subsequently their ownership of private um, property. And through their, you know, racial violence over black people, you know, they're able to maintain this sort of, you know, underclass who don't have, you know, the resources or, you know, the, you know, access to the means of production to be able to, you know, challenge the uh, white ruling class, you know, and thus they're unable to um, challenge the power, you know, that comes from whiteness, you know. So, you know, the power of whiteness, because of this fact that, you know, black people are pushed to, you know, the bottom poles of, you know, society, I think, you know, this continues to what we see today uh, which, uh, you know, manifests in systemic forms of racism. So if you see, for example, the transatlantic slave trade, 
that happened uh, during the 17th and 18th century. Uh, yeah, if you look at that, you know, it was one of the most violent forms of racism in world history. And slavery was also one of the most profitable forms of labor back then. And, you know, this slave master uh, relation, you know, uh, between enslaved Africans and, you know, their European masters, it was really justified by European science and enlightenment thinkers, you know, which saw black people as an inferior race. I don't even think they saw, you know, black people as, you know, humans. They saw them, you know, as akin to like um, animals. And this is something that Polly uh, Lewis really addresses in her books, uh, Politics of Everybody. You know, she discusses and gets to grips with the issue that, you know, uh, the social marginalization of black people, women, immigrants, and so forth, it is, you know, directly related to the need to reproduce working people. So um, the relationship between um, capitalism and racism has not been explored, I think, enough within this movement, you know, so we haven't been able to, you know, get to grips with the, you know, deep-rooted causes of racism to be able to strategize, you know, and build strong, informed collective that would be able to tackle it. Tracy, one question I'd like to ask you about is about the experience of coronavirus in the UK. It seems to me that during the early phase, um, where there was a lot of panic, I think, high anxiety in the air, it was represented um, as an affliction that was going to be of most threat to the elderly. Um, but over time, it seems that, well, it has continued to, um, the, the death rate is most highest felt amongst the old. We, we can further adjust and note that it's amongst the British Asian minority ethnic who, who are the most um vulnerable or at least are, are, are the, 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 where the highest death rates are in New York and Harlem. We also know that there's been a devastating impact upon black people. And it does seem that there's been a certain type of relaxation in the mood of panic overall, as though there was some sort of realization that this is of less concern to white people than immediately what, what was first thought of and, and hence this element of complacency is perhaps snuck in. Do you think that's a fair way of, of thinking about how it's been covered or, or played out in the British imaginarium that there's that, that deeply seated racism, that the idea that black lives don't matter as much has defined the national response to coronavirus? Yes, um, I think I would definitely agree with your sentiments. Um, you know, to pro provide some context, I think, you know, one of the reasons why black struggle and coronavirus have, you know, collided in such a way is because of, you know, um, the shocking statistics uh, which were published, you know, from Public Health England, which showed, you know, at the time that, you know, 72% of the deaths from COVID-19 um, amongst, you know, the NHS staff was disproportionately from 
you know, people within the black and ethnic minority communities, you know, the first 10 doctors, you know, who died from uh, COVID-19 were from black and Asian minority backgrounds. And I think it was found that um, black and Asian minorities were overrepresented in the COVID-19 death toll overall. So, you know, you see these really shocking results, you know, and what was actually, I think, even more shocking and really gets to the heart of your question is that the findings um, of this report, uh, the, the government actually made, you know, the really shocking decision to refuse, you know, to publish the results, uh, the findings, you know, when it was first, when it first came out because they didn't want the findings, um, you know, from this independent inquiry, you know, to exasperate the already rising, you know, prominent, you know, racial tensions that we were seeing in Britain. And I think that was just preposterous. You know, you, you uh, given the, you know, urgency of the matter, like people were literally dying on a daily basis, you know, numbers even reaching 900, you know, and most of them, you know, a large disproportionate number of them from the black and Asian minority communities. So the fact, you know, that the media and, you know, the black and people from within the Black Lives Matter movement actually had to put, you know, pressure on the government to release, you know, these, you know, important findings. You know, it was really baffling um, to a lot of people, you know, within the um, black community. So again, I think, you know, the potential saving of black lives was, you know, effectively put on hold, you know, until uh, the government was sure that they could, you know, manage the race relations in Britain, you know, effectively showing that, you know, black lives were not, you know, uh, urgent concern of them. When we talk about this in context to the black struggle and what they did, you know, in response to this, you know, it was very much centred, you know, on a demand for the government to make public this information, you know, speedily, quickly implement um, these recommend recommendations and, you know, provide a level of transparency, you know, as to how this would be achieved, you know, how they would be able to safeguard um, the lives of black people from the information that they receive from the public independent inquiry. Because we've seen throughout history there have been, you know, so many, you know, reviews by the government, so many independent reviews by the government into institutional racism. A large majority of the findings in these reviews, they're never implemented. You know, one of the biggest ones was, you know, the McPherson report that found, you know, the British police force to be um, institutionally racist, you know. There was, you know, a lot of recommendations put forth how to, in, as to how to change the infrastructure of the police force to make it less um, racist. But then we see today, 30 years later, you know, those changes literally, you know, meant nothing. You know, black people are still, you know, being victimised violently at the ha by the hands of the, you know, British um, police. And, you know dying also at the hands of British police and there has never been a single conviction or a charge against police here in the UK. So I think that really sheds light, you know, on the, you know, uh, effectiveness 
if we talk about a public inquiry, if we talk about the specific one, you know, that was released by Public Health England on the disproportionate number of deaths of black people, I have zero confidence that the government is going to do what it needs to do with that information to ensure, you know, black people are adequately protected, you know, and I think the statistics, you know, like I said before, really uh, highlighted or magnified, you know, the long standing, deep rooted structural, you know, intersecting inequalities that have, you know, that, you know, that have been, you know, experienced by the black community, fueled by, you know, the institutional racism of this country, because, you know, it imposes social, socioeconomic disadvantages on the black community which have exasperated, you know, the exposure to COVID-19. And, you know, to give another example, um, okay, I'll give uh, give the example later, but, you know, just focusing on Britain specifically first, you know, what we were seeing, you know, playing out in, uh, in, in Britain was the fact that, you know, a lot of the members from the Black and Asian ethnic minority communities they were, you know, labelled as being, you know, key essential workers um, who underpin, you know, the key essential work that was needed to continue to be carried out in Britain, even when we went through lockdown, you know, whether it be food or um, transport, um, healthcare, social care. And so they were really on the front line and uh, more exposed to the disease. But, you know, even when the government knew of, you know, the disproportionate number of deaths um, that were occurring within the Black and Asian uh, minority community, there was no type of, you know, urgent, you know, concerted effort to safeguard their lives, which I think was really demonstrated, which I think really demonstrated, you know, the disposable nature of Black people here. They were very much seen as by the British government as, you know, needing to serve a purpose, you know, and if they died in the line of fire, oh, well, you know, so be it. You know, that was very much the impression that was felt um, within the black community um, in regards to the government's response. Also, if we look outside of the West now, you know, there was, there was also this news story um, about, uh, I don't know if you heard it, these French doctors, uh, they were holding, I think it was a televised debate um, about um, COVID-19 and, you know, um, the potential for vac- vaccines um, for it. And they were discussing Africa and, you know, these two French doctors so openly said um, during this live debate, you know, that Africa should be used as a sort of, you know, testing ground to find a vaccine for coronavirus um, because of the fact that in Africa there is a lack of protective gear like um, face masks and the fact that, you know, the healthcare system in, Afri- in Africa, you know, is unable to provide, you know, adequate treatment to, you know, COVID-19 pa- um, patients, you know, and, you know, perform resuscitations. And so I think this was another example of the diminishing of black lives and black bodies, you know, and seeing them as disposable, you know, 
even though these French doctors, they were highlighting facts about um, Africa and, you know, the healthcare systems within Africa, they didn't bring forth any suggestion of how, you know, we as the West, you know, can provide aid for Africa to be able to protect, protect against disease. You know, it was very much, let's use them and let's use their bodies as guinea pigs, you know, and let's not even focus on, you know, how can we save lives there. So, yeah, I think that's an important thing to also realise that within, not just within the West, within Africa, the African continent, you know, black lives were, you know, being considered as even less important than the lives of black people here in the West. I think one of the most prolific moments here in the UK, you know, which showed the interception of um, coronavirus um, and uh, black lives was really the case of Belly Mujinga. I don't know if you heard of her case. She was a black transport worker working for TfL who was spat on by someone who um, admitted to Belly and her um, her colleague that he had the Desi disease. And, you know, as a result, um, Belly, she died um, days later from COVID-19. However, you know, the police um, have decided not to take the case further, despite various lobbying, you know, for the government, you know, to take action and, you know, demands for justice. There's been so many petitions that have been spread uh, spread online, you know, about, you know, getting justice um, for Belly, you know, bringing her, you know, killer to justice. There has been no convictions made and the police force have said that they're not going to take the matter any further. So, you know, this really evoked, you know, a lot of national and even global outrage that was coinciding with the protests that were happening um, around George Floyd. Um, yeah, so a lot of people were coming out on the streets of Britain, you know, to petition to get the government to demand for justice. But I think this just highlights, you know, another, you know, case, you know, within this moment that really shows that, you know, black lives in Britain is, you know, not considered as valuable. And it, you know, raises the question, had she, you know, been a white person, would the, you know, government and police have followed the same, you know, measures, you know, and when I say measures, I mean doing nothing. Yes, thank you, Tracy. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks very much, Tracy. I'm very thankful that you came on and shared all of, all of this.